Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Marion Todd, who is a writer. Her debut novel, See Them Run, which was published in 2019, was shortlisted for the Bloody Scotland Scottish Crime Debut of the Year in 2020. Since then, Marion has published a further three books with two more to come in the next 12 months. She's had a variety of jobs over the years, mostly in education as a lecturer in further education, which are rich pickings for a writer. And she has also worked previously as a plantswoman, a candle maker, and a pianist in a hotel lounge. And when she's not writing, Marion is usually walking her daughter's dog or battling with the jungle lake garden. Marion, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much, Paul. I'm delighted to be here. Now, I mentioned there your debut novel, which was published to some acclaim, but then when I then went on to already write about the prolific output of books that you've already published and are going to be publishing, I take it it's just. You know, once you've got that first book published, you're just, you've got so much to say, you're just desperate to get all those books and those stories out. It's been quite a heavy schedule, but it's not quite as impressive as it sounds or might look. When I was signed by my agent and then subsequently by Canelo, my publishers, I already had the first two books written and the third book was sketched out. So they signed me on book one and they said, do you have any others? So I sent them book two and they said, yep, that's great. What else do you have? And I let them see my plan for book three and ideas for further books. So they signed me up for a three book contract. And it was quite nice to start with because I didn't really have to do very much work. The first book was written, obviously had to be edited. The second book, likewise. And I was tootling away writing the third book at just quite a nice relaxed pace. And then suddenly they said, we'd like to offer you another contract for a further three books. And I thought, yeah, that's fine. I can do that. But the schedule was one every six months. So it's, the pace has, has really uh, ramped up. I've been very, very busy of late. And I'm now starting to plan the sixth book. The fifth one is, is written. I just have some copy editing things to sort out. And the sixth one has to be in, I think, for September or October. I'm trying not to think about it because I'm just at the early stages of planning it. So it, it's been busy of late. I'm looking forward to a rest after book six. I mean, that is... That is a pretty tight schedule, but I suppose, I think for any writer as well, that, you know, when I mentioned that See Them Run, which was your, your first book, shortlisted for the, the Bloody Scotland Scotland Crime debut of the year last year. I suppose as part of you, when you when you get your first book published, you're just you're delighted that all that work's come to fruition. But then when you actually start to get some recognition of it, I suppose that validates what you're doing and you think all that work you put in is paying off. It does. Yeah, for sure. You go through this, this, um, and you know, I went through probably about 12 months of trying to, to sell the book that eventually became See Them Run, and indeed its predecessor. There's a book buried in a hard drive that will never see the light of day, as I think everybody has. And you kind of, you don't know if it's any good. I, I hadn't a clue. And when I was signed by my agent, it was almost just a sense of relief. Not necessarily that I was going to be published, but just that someone was saying, yeah, this is okay, we think you can write And then I was signed by my publisher and I felt great as well. When See Them Run was shortlisted for the the debut prize, that was just the most enormous boost because I think going back maybe about 2015, I had gone to Bloody Scotland and attended their crime writing masterclass and thought, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be fun if I could be an actual part of this? And had lockdown not happened, I would have been there last year at the awards ceremony which we did virtually it was great it was fantastic but you know it would have been nice to have actually been there but they did they did a great job bloody scotland they really did they made us feel absolutely special gave us loads of publicity and everything it was just the most enormous thrill but then of course when all of that's over you're back to sitting in front of the computer and thinking right i'm actually writing series fiction here so this needs to keep going i've got to make the most of the fact that i'm in the spotlight just now and tomorrow i could be chip paper So let's crack on and get some more books written. 
And, you know, if one day I, I am chip paper, then I've had a fantastic time. But for now, I'm, I'm happy to keep going. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I was wondering as well, you know, you, you mentioned that they, they did the award ceremony remotely by Zoom. You know, you know that way when you see award ceremonies on TV, do they then they picture all the shortlisted writers and you have to, if your name's not read out as the winner, you have to show that gracious expression when secretly you're raging because you, you weren't the one. They were very the good. They, I was already with my kind of, you know, um, banana in my mouth sideways uh, smile. But they said to us, as soon as the winner is announced, we'll cut your video. But I kept smiling just in case because you know, it would have been just my luck for me to go off for God's sake, you know, you know, why didn't I win? But no, so I kept smiling and then they came on and said, right, you're free to go. And I, I sort of relaxed back and listened to the chat between the winner and the panel, which was, was lovely to do as well. I was thrilled for Deborah, who won the debut prize and for Francine, who won the McIlvanny, because as a foursome, we'd become very close through online activities and I would have been happy for anyone to win. Obviously, I'd be very happy if I'd won, but it, I didn't feel at all that I'd lost out because the whole experience had just been such a boost and great fun. You mentioned that, you know, the time you, you signed up with your agent, your publisher, you've already written two books, you're, you've got ideas, you're working on your third one, you've got other ideas. So I'm, I'm guessing then that desire to write, you know, long precedes when you actually got to the point of publishing the novels then? Yes, I've... I think almost every writer, if you speak to them, they'll say that they've written all their lives. And, I, you know, I, I've got a school book somewhere from Primary 5 where I wrote a mystery story. I sort of dabbled in various things. I've had some stories published in my weekly short stories, some pieces in the, the local newspaper, The Courier. And then I won a short story competition. Those of us who are old enough to remember Family Circle magazine, they had a short story competition back in the 1980s. And I won that. And I thought, maybe I can do this. And then, you know, I had children and life intervened and I stopped writing for a while, but it was always there. And when I went to work in further education, there was a lot of potential for writing if you wanted it. So I would volunteer to write case studies, for exam papers and things like that, and scenarios for students to, to kind of practice. Or I loved doing practice exam papers and practice essay questions and, and so on. And one of my colleagues was always saying to me, you should write a book, you should write a book, look at all this nonsense you're writing here. Then in 2016, I, uh, there was lots of changes happening in further education, and I thought, time to go. So I, I left and I thought, right, I am going to write that novel now. And I had three chapters of the book that will never see the light of day. I had three chapters of that sitting written. So I finished that, and by that stage, I thought, yeah. I would like to give this a proper go. And if I can't find a publisher or an agent, then at least I know I've tried. It's funny, I was, I was speaking to another writer for the podcast, Neil Broadfoot, and I was saying that, you know, that idea that, you know, there's loads of people who will tell you that they've got an idea for a book, I'd love to write a book. And sometimes it's actually just the physical act of sitting down in front of your laptop and actually yeah. writing the thing. And then even before you get your agent or your publisher, if you get to finish your manuscript, you're further on than, than most people because you've actually finished. After that, as you know, it's just a different hard graft of editing and, and then putting out in the world. Of course. No, I mean, when I finished writing that very first unpublished book, I went out and celebrated because I thought I've done it. And what had actually spurred me on, uh, this is the odd thing, was my oldest son, who has Asperger's syndrome and doesn't work, but has written all his life. From the minute he could read and write, he's written stories. And I helped him self-publish his first book. And when he did it, I thought, that's brilliant. I'm really pleased for him, really happy. And there was a little voice in the back of my head saying, you should have done this. And I sort of thought, I'm going to be one of these people who I'm going to have an old lady saying, I could have written a book. So I thought, right, let's find out if I can write a book. And you found out you can write six in a very short space of time. <laughs> well, well, five, five uncounted. <laughs> well, I suppose if you count the other one, the other one that's not published, um, Yes, yeah. It's amazing, actually, once you get going. I didn't know where ideas would come from. And now that I've started writing, it's like the cap's been taken off the well and the ideas just come. I don't know if it's tapping into something that's sitting buried. I'm not sure. Which is quite exciting as well as a, as a writer. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. And, you know, there's, there's too many stories to write. I, I sort of think, oh, I'd like to do this and I'd like to do that. Um, if I could just get the, the time and the space in my head. Because I think you mentioned a thing there where you probably got somewhere 
a notebook from like primary five with all your wee stories because yeah. I, I used to always joke to my mum because I, I again like a lot of people I remember as soon as you could read you wanted to write stories so I would write stories when I was in primary school and show my mum and dad and they were always very encouraging and I always say to her you should have kept them and the off chance that I become famous and then you can put them on eBay and make some money out of me. <laughs> I thought about that that's a good point. Do you know that way you, you know because I'm always curious I always wish I think you would kid yourself I would kid myself on if I read these things come back and trying to see some sort of literary talent that was just beginning to flourish at primary school. But it would be quite curious to go back and read what you were, you know, what you were writing and what you were thinking about when you were that age. I, I can remember I was I'm plot heavy when I write and I have to go back and fill in the descriptive narrative. I like I like the nuts and bolts of, of the plot. And I think that's what I was like at an early age. And I can remember when I was in primary school, every week we would be given a bit of creative writing to do. And the teacher would read out what he thought was the best one. And I got used to it being my bit that was read out because um, I thought, you know, it was the best writer in the class. And often it was mine. And one week it was another girl called Valerie. He read out Valerie's essay instead of mine. And I was livid. But what's that about? You know, don't don't read out hers, read mine. But when I listened to hers, I realised that what mine lacked she had in spades, it was the description, it was a circus that she'd written about, and she described the colours and the sounds and the smells and everything. And I thought, ah, right, that's what we're meant to do, is it? And that's always been my weak spot, the description. So when I'm writing, I'll write the plot first, and then I'll go back and I'll add the colour to it to make it hopefully a bit more interesting to read. But it's interesting, actually, you, when you're describing that, just even in primary school, once you get over the fact that your essay's not been read out or your story's <laughs> not been read out, you're, you're still able to figure out why it wasn't and, and what your story's missing that will enhance it if you, if you then add the descriptions. And I think that reflects how I write now because I'm very much focused on the plot being watertight and there being no holes and everything tying up and all the strands coming hopefully together by the end. And to me, that's the bit that absolutely has to be right. So I focus on that from the outset and it's easy then to go back and uh, add what was missing. I would probably be quite happy just to write plot, but I realise that that there has to be more to it than that for the reader to become invested. Well, talking of, obviously mention of primary school and, and childhood takes us almost seamlessly onto the first question in the podcast and that is your favourite book from childhood and the book that you chose it's a book called The Little Red Hen it's part of the the Ladybird series well first of all what was it about that book that kind of still resonates with you you still remember from childhood I think first of all it's one of the earliest books I was given and in those you know when my children were young we used to go to library sales and they had more books than they knew what to do with I used to buy books and books and books I didn't have quite so many books when I was little, certainly not children's books. And I remember this book. And it's a very moral tale, The Little Red Hen. It's about a hen who finds some grains of wheat and she decides that she'll plant them. And she goes to three farm animals, the cat, the rat and the pig, and asks them to help. And they say, nah, you're all right. On you go, hen. So she goes off and she plants them herself. So the, the wheat grows and then it's ready to be harvested and she asks for help. And again, they say no. So she does it herself. She takes it to the baker. She asks them to help. Nah. And it's not until the baker has made it into a loaf of bread and she says, who wants to help me eat it? And they all say, yeah, I will. And then she says to them, no, you won't. I'll eat it myself. And I've actually written in the back of the book in my loopy children's handwriting. This story tells you if you want something, you have to work for it. And that's the kind of philosophy that my parents drilled into me. The world doesn't owe you a living. If you want something, go out and work for it. Get your head down and and get working. And for a writer, that's very, very good advice because it is, as you know, Paul, it's hard graft writing. The book is beautifully illustrated and there's very few words to pictures. Every second page is full page picture, lovely drawings. And what I love about it is that it's a drawing based on an actual village called Hambledon down in, uh, gosh, somewhere in England. I think, it's, uh, I think it's in Hampshire. Hampshire, thank you, it is. It actually looks very similar today as to how it looks in, in the, the hen pictures. 
So it's a visual treat. I, I love the writing. I love the reward that the hen works hard. And um, I've earned myself the nickname of the little red hen in the family because uh, we live in a street that doesn't, it's like a side street, doesn't get gritted or anything in the winter and we get snow. So I'll be out and I'll clear my pavements and I'll clear the road so the car can get out. People use my drive to turn in. And I think, you know, it's just part, I'm lucky I've got a drive and not everybody does. So I'll clear it so that other people can use it. The rest of the family laugh at me and say, God, you're so good. But I'm not really, you know, I just, I'm, but uh, I, I think I am the embodiment of the hen. When you mentioned the cover there, you'd sent me a, you know, somebody had actually written a, a blog, I think it was, and they'd actually visited yes. Hambledon. And it is amazing, with the exception, I think, of a few cars in the picture that they took. I mean, it was amazing that you could actually see, it was almost like a step back in time to the cover of The Little Red Hen. And I'm guessing that painting would have been done in probably the early 1960s, if not before that. And if you took the cars out of the, the picture, then it's exactly the same. It's a beautiful village. There's actually a house for sale there just now. I had a wee look recently and I thought, gosh, will I move to England and buy it? But, um, <laughs> that, yeah. that, that's taken fanaticism of the book that, to new levels. Yeah, yeah, I need to settle down. <laughs> do you have, you, you know, you mentioned about the fact you had written in the, in the back of it. Do you still have your original copy then? I'm holding it up here. Wow. For, for the, the listeners to see. And if I turn to the back page, you can see my little moral message. It's honestly, I'm sickening. Um, obviously, it's, it's back to front, but that says this story shows that if you want something, you work for it. In my scabby handwriting. What age would you have been when you wrote that? For that, that story and that sort of wee message of the book to resonate with you, you know, at a um, young, young age? Yes, yes. It's, you know, the, the drawings are just glorious. And I've drawn all over the book as well. But just, you know, I just love it. It's such a lovely, lovely thing to have. I don't think I can think of any other books from my childhood that are as precious as that. It's funny what I was thinking, you know, because quite often when somebody chooses a book from childhood and, you know, for all sorts of different sentimental reasons, whether it's the first book they really read themselves or a book they remember their, their parents or grandparents or whatever reading to them. But quite often people then go back in adulthood and maybe try and get a copy of that book either for their own kids. But the fact you've still got your original copy with your own illustrations to go <laughs> alongside, to me, I would imagine that is something special because I suppose every time you're opening that book, apart from reading the story, those wee drawings, you're stepping back in time until you're that wee girl again. I just, I loved it so much. And I think the reason I wrote and drew on the book was because I was just so invested in it. And it has stuck with me. I think I'm, by nature, I'm, I'm quite hardworking. That, that makes me sound awfully sanctimonious. And uh, I don't mean to be like that. I tend to be quite a busy person. And I think I just, I like the message in the book. I mean, I'm guessing then as soon as you learn to read, you become a voracious reader then as a child. So the cliche is sitting at breakfast, reading the cereal packets and teaching myself to say Nias and Thiamin and Riboflavin, who I thought were actually the three men on the, the, the rice crisps. <laughs> I didn't realise they were called Snap, Crackle and Pop. I thought that was their names. It'd be a lot easier for you if you'd realised that. It would. I read anything I could get my hands on. I would read my parents' books. And whenever we went on holiday, the first thing my mum and dad would do was be to find a bookshop buy me a couple of books and then they'd get peace for the holiday because I would just sit sit and read. It's the ability to go to another place, to live in another world. You know, I, I remember asking my mum, can I please go to boarding school? Because I was I was reading all the boarding school, Enid Blyton and then the Shally School. And I just thought I have to go there. I have to, you know, have a French teacher who I can play tricks on and have midnight feasts and life won't be worth living if I don't go. Obviously I didn't. Well, if I can take you on from... The Little Red Hen and your favourite book from childhood and go to kind of teenage formative years. And the book that you've chosen in this category is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. I think it's one of the finest books written. And I don't mean that in a sense of technical planning or plotting, but the characterisation. It's a love story between Elizabeth Bennet, who is prejudiced against the very proud Mr Darcy. And we know almost from the start that... Elizabeth and Darcy are probably going to end up together. But the barriers that are put in their way are to do with the time, the 19th century life. Elizabeth doesn't have wealth. Darcy is loaded. He's got loads of money. So Elizabeth wouldn't be a suitable match for him and so on. But uh, she also has this incredibly vulgar mother who makes no secret of the fact that she's out to marry her daughters off. Because, of course, in those days, they weren't going to inherit 
the father's estate was entailed down the male line and he had produced nothing but daughters. So it was going to go to this cousin, Mr. Collins, who was a clergyman. The way the different characters are drawn, there's not no two the same. And there's nobody there who doesn't matter because they're all providing something. They're all, they all have a role to play in the action. And um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. The clergyman, Mr. Collins, he's kind of so obsequious and so completely unaware of how awful he is in this kind of cringing, fawning way. And then there's, there's um, the dashing Mr. Wickham, who's the baddie, who Elizabeth kind of temporarily falls for before she realises that he's not all he, he claims to be. And gradually, you know, Jane Austen makes us dislike Mr. Darcy from the start. And gradually she manipulates the reader into realising that Darcy's actually pretty good and um, that his pride is just kind of down to his upbringing and, and shyness. And he has a wonderful relation, this gruesome aunt called Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and she dislikes Elizabeth on sight. And I think she fears her and realises that Darcy may be taken in by it. Well, not taken in, may fall in love with Elizabeth. And she does everything in her power to, to stop it happening. And it, it's just a wonderful study in character. But it's also an interesting observation of how life was for gentlewomen, I suppose we'd call them, of the time, but who perhaps weren't particularly wealthy. And the only future for them was marriage or perhaps to become a governess. And in fact, when Elizabeth is proposed to by the quite dreadful Mr. Collins, who thinks it's his duty to at least marry one of the daughters in the family because he's taking the, the fortune and she turns him down, he then, on the rebound, proposes to her very sensible friend, Charlotte, and she accepts him to Elizabeth's horror. And Charlotte says to her, I'm not good looking. I don't have talents. This is all there is for me. So it's quite well observed in terms of the times as well. Was this a book that you read at school or was it just something that you read yourself? I did Jane Austen novels either for higher English or what was six-year studies English then, which I suppose would be advanced higher now. I can't remember which it was. We started with Northanger Abbey, which was very light. And then we went on to Pride and Prejudice and I thought, I don't want to read any more. This is just perfect, this book. I read all six of the books and it's still my favourite. Yeah, and is it, is it something that you revisit? Yes, definitely. I would probably read it maybe about every every five years. But then we had the wonderful um, Andrew Davis TV adaptation for the BBC. And unlike many adaptations, it was incredibly faithful to the plot. So I, I quite often will watch that as well, just because it's beautifully acted. The screenplay is is just wonderful. It's it, it, there's Everything about it is wonderful. Um, it's an absolute jewel. I didn't read it until about five or six years ago. I was doing it at the time. It was a kind of reading project, which turned into a read a book, a read all about it book, and it was my journey of trying to to read more books and fall in love with literature again. Because I I found I was I was buying a lot of books and maybe not reading them as much. One of the books that I ended up reading was Pride and Prejudice, and you know it's funny when at the time, and I don't know if it was just in my head that and it seems silly that it was almost like a woman's book or a girl's book. That, I can see why you do that. And that's maybe why it took me so long. Part of that, and then also, funnily enough, things like period drama, films or TV series are just not something that I ever watch. I've never really engaged with them. So I was I was pleasantly surprised when I, when I read Pride and Prejudice because maybe just some preconceptions that I had or misconceptions. Well, it, it, no, I mean, I can see why it's... The language is quite formal and it's it's quite stilted at times. But then there are just these little gems of observations that, you know, the, the one that, that sticks in my head is when Elizabeth is proposed to by Mr. Collins and she refuses him. Her mother goes into an absolute just flippy. She's, she's just can't believe that one of her daughters that she nearly had married off has turned this man down and the man that's going to inherit their estate. So she goes to Elizabeth's father and she delivers an ultimatum and Elizabeth is called to meet her father. And he says to her, Elizabeth, an unhappy alternative is before you today. If you do not marry Mr. Collins, your mother will never see you again. And if you do Mr. marry Mr. Collins, I will never see you again. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and then you realise, yes, the father, he reads the room. He sort of sees that Elizabeth is too bright, too intelligent, too thinking a woman to be saddling herself with this dreadful clergyman. 
it's just that the wit, just these tiny little lines and the way that Lady Catherine speaks to Elizabeth as well. It's just, ah, it's a book I never tire of. I mean, you mentioned that you, maybe every five years or so, you reread that book. In terms of your reading, do you reread a lot of books or are you always reading new things? If I find a book that I really enjoy, then I will reread it just for the joy of revisiting the prose. I know what's going to happen, but it's good writing is always a joy to read. And I know lots of people say, well, why would you read a book again? I know people who, who will read a book once and then they'll give it away. But to me, they're like old friends, a bit like going back to the hen. It's a kind of security blanket. I think it's something familiar, something I can rely on. And, you know, we live in such strange times just now. It's nice for me to have something that I can depend on. And I suppose the other thing as well, which is probably nice, is that, again, it, although it's taking you back to the first time you read, for example, Pride and Prejudice, when you're reading it now, you're maybe getting something different out of yes. it than you did when you were a teenager. Particularly as a, as a writer myself, knowing what goes into making a book. I, I find when I read books now, I'm maybe 90% enjoying the book and 10% I'm looking at why the book works. Unless it's a really exquisitely written book, in which case you forget to think about why it's working. You just lose yourself entirely in it. Conversely, then, do you, you sometimes read a book where you're maybe not enjoying it and at the same time you're thinking, why isn't this working? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I can think of one example, a book that for me I felt was overwritten maybe needed to be edited down a good bit. And, and I was reading it and thinking, that paragraph there, that could be a sentence, and things like that. And then there are other books where perhaps the subject matter is something that I think, I don't want to go there, this is scaring me too much, or it's a, maybe torture or something like that, which I can't write and I, I don't read. So those would be books that I would shy away from, while still perhaps admiring the quality of the writing. And I suppose it's that, that whole thing of, the advice, or the kind of really the most basic advice to writers is we obviously need to write, but you need to read a lot as well. Yes, definitely. When I decided I wanted to write seriously, I looked into doing an MLit at Dundee University and also doing one distance learning with other institutions. And I was kind of put off by the cost and also the fact that this is really pathetic. The fact that I would have to do Harvard referencing again and when I did my postgrad teaching qualification, I swore I would never do Harvard again because I hate it. And that's a really stupid reason not to do a, a master's. But um, I just kind of thought, I, I'm not sure I want to do a structured thing. So I set about creating my own master's programme. And I looked at who was writing in my field, Scottish crime writing, just now. I started reading and uh, I went from author to author to author, just picking up one book from each then I started attending things like the Bloody Scotland Writing Masterclass and going to bookshop readings. And I joined a book club at Waterstones where the authors came along and talked to us about their books and uh, made up my own programme. But by and large, the, the most important bit was reading and good text, good technique, good narrative, good characterization seeps into you almost by osmosis. And I hope I learned and was able to reproduce some of what I was reading. I don't mean copying or plagiarising, but learning by the techniques and thinking, right, oh, I see what he's done there. And actually, I don't think that page moves the narrative on, so I wouldn't have that. So it's that kind of thing. The more you read, without a doubt, the more you learn about writing. And it's obviously paid off for you. Well, you know, I hope so. So far, so far, so good. We're, we're doing OK at the moment. I'm always kind of waiting on the next one being a turkey but hopefully not <laughs> hopefully not it gets harder it, it really it gets harder with every book people would find that you know because I think people if they maybe haven't written would think it would be the other way around actually once you once you know what you're doing and you've had one or two it becomes a smoother process but I suppose since every new book is a new idea so you're almost starting afresh every time well you know you use up all your good ideas in book one don't you potentially book two I think the process of, of writing I know now the mistakes that I've made in the past, and I try not to make those again. I mean, every book that you submit to an editor, you think, this is perfect. And then it comes back with the structural edits, and you just think, oh, no, it's not perfect. But I'm hoping that I'm aspiring to a higher standard with each book. I may not be achieving it yet, but that's my wish. So I know more about the technique and the discipline and the processes 
but coming up with the ideas gets harder and harder every time because you know, you're gradually using up your stock of um, things that you want to write about. Yeah, and especially when your publisher's saying, can I have uh, three books by this time next week? <laughs> yes, uh-huh. yes. If you're listening, Canelo, it's not easy. <laughs> Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Marion Todd. Marion, we are on to your third book choice, and that's a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman. I have. I mean, this book, this is a debut novel. This was Gail Honeyman's first book, and it just absolutely blew me away. I couldn't read it fast enough. It's a triumph, and it's the book I wish I'd written. I just love it so much. I think its strength comes from the characterisation and the creation of the character of Eleanor. We probably all know an Eleanor because she's just a little, what we might say, a little bit odd. She's the person who's not quite in with the crowd in the office. You know, she's she's on the periphery. All seems a bit strange. And you don't really know why at the start of the book she is as she is. You just think she's a bit odd. She goes home. She drinks heavily. And she seems to manage, she's a functioning alcoholic, although she drinks only at the weekends by the looks of it. And she seems to manage to hold down a job and and to do a good job. Her standards are incredibly high and she doesn't understand modern life. And every Wednesday evening, she has a phone conversation with her mummy. Her mummy's standards are exacting. and, And you begin to see through this why Eleanor is as she is, or you think you're seeing but actually you don't really know until the book progresses. And Eleanor's story is actually quite a dark one, but the book is written with such a light touch that you don't notice the darkness until it's upon you. It's an absolute triumph. And it's a book that had me laughing out loud and weeping, not at the same time, but it just, my heart broke for Eleanor. It was such a a heart-rending and heartwarming tale it has kindness, it, it has loneliness. She's socially awkward and, and very lonely, but she seems so matter-of-fact about it. And it's only when she interacts with the girls in her office or with other people that you realise that she's entirely alone in her head, in her thoughts in the world, apart from this weekly conversation with the mummy. It's a wonderful book. I suppose like a lot of books, and you mentioned it just there is the, the key is the characterization because if you if you can engage with the character and empathize or sympathize then you're, you're in that story and, and I think that book does it brilliantly and as you say that everybody probably knows somebody who maybe is obviously not exactly like her but has maybe some yeah. traits and things, characteristics and it's a really crucial insight into to people that maybe sometimes are dismissed as maybe odd and socially mm-hmm. awkward but there's stories behind that and people behind that that I think she's really good at making you think about that. Oh, goodness, yes. And, and at the same time, seeing the humour and the comedy, you know, there's a wonderful moment where this uh, young man who she kind of looks down on, called Raymond, comes into her life. He's the IT guy at her workplace. And they go for a drink together, not romantically, but you know, I think Raymond is trying to, to sort of help Eleanor to rescue her. He sees something there that, that needs help. And they go for a drink and she goes up to the bar and she buys herself a drink and she buys him a pint of Guinness, I think it is. And she takes it back after a bit of interaction with with the barman who is surprised that she doesn't want to pour the drink herself. He gives her a glass and a bottle and she says, do I have to pour this? And she goes back to the table and they have their drink and then Raymond gets up to leave. And as he's going, she says to him, Raymond? And he says, what? She said, £3.50 for the Guinness, please. (laughs) And she's just like, does she not know that's not how it works? And it's just things like that, you know, it's so beautifully observed because, yes, there are probably people who, if they don't go out for a drink, they don't know that people buy rounds. And, and sometimes you buy a round and you don't get given a drink back and that's just life, that's how it works. It, it evens out the next time. She's just so completely not of this world and yet she's very, very much a product of her world and what has happened to her, which is revealed as the book goes on. 
Yeah, because I remember at the time, I think, when the book came out and maybe listening to some interviews with Gail Honeyman, and it was that whole, you mentioned already, that issue of loneliness and, and adult loneliness of people who will have jobs and work and people will know them in an office environment. But quite often, I suppose it happens in every office environment, once people leave the office at the end of the day, quite often you don't know where these people are going and what, what kind of home life. And, and there's maybe a lot of adults that have what seems on the surface a perfectly functional life and, and job, but actually it's surrounded by periods of being alone and I suppose by extension of loneliness. I sometimes, if I'm out at night, if I'm driving or walking, I'm going past houses where there's a light on and the curtains are drawn. And I think, I wonder what's going on behind those curtains. I wonder what, you know, what dramas are playing out. Are the people there happy? Are they unhappy? Yeah, that's the, um, that's the writer in you, of course, isn't it? I guess it's, it's, the, it's observation, yeah. isn't it? My auntie Jean, everybody's got an auntie Jean in Scotland. It's, it's the law. <laughs> she lived, um, that's absolutely the true, because I've got one as well. <laughs> You have to have an anti-gene. <laughs> she lived at the very top of one of the Red Road Maltese, which at the time when she moved in 1966, I think it was, they were the new hope. They were She were cleared out of beautiful sandstone tenements, which were knocked down and put into these this, this social disaster, these high-rise flats. And she was floor 30. And you could stand at her window at night because she never closed her curtains because nobody could see in because she was the top. And I looked. I used to look at all these other windows in the Maltese across the way hundreds and hundreds of them, different coloured curtains. Some of them were open, some of them were closed. Sometimes you would see people. One night we saw a fire in the flat and I just used to stand there and it was like watching the telly. It was just a window on the world and every single house was that person's own personal drama. And I think the thing about Eleanor is that even though you're one of the brightest and the best and you're in with the in crowd, I think in almost everybody, there's a little, a little element of being on your own and not being like other people. And I think that's why the book touched so many readers, because we all recognise a little bit of that isolation, that, that on the periphery in ourselves. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm the, the, the odd one. But I think all of us can see a little bit of where we could potentially be Eleanor if things had gone wrong. It's almost like watching a car accident and not being able to take your eyes away, you think, my gosh, you know, there but for the grace of God, go any one of us. Because she isn't odd. She's a product of what's happened to her. And that's why she is as, as she is. There's a, a kind of, there's a lot of talk about was Eleanor autistic. And it's tempting to, to look at her quirks, her taking things quite literally and say, oh, yes, she is. But Gail Honeyman has said that she's not, that she's lonely, she's, she's troubled socially awkward. She also has facial scars and we don't know why she has these until later on in the book. And that obviously affects how you see yourself and how you think others see you. It's, it's just a beautifully observed piece of fiction. Because one of the things I've often heard people say or I've read is that, and it's obviously very much in terms of encouraging people to read, but readers almost by their very nature are, are more empathetic in a lot of situations because you know, for example, in Eleanor Oliphant, you're reading a book where you're immersed in a character that you maybe hadn't known before, or, or you get a perspective where on the surface, if you met somebody like that in real life, you might just think they're a bit odd, but then Gail Honeyman's given you a, a fully rounded character. So it gives you that sense of empathy that you, I suppose, you can then have in actual real life situations. Yeah, definitely. You, you, you think, would you invite Eleanor to your party if you were having people round? You might not, but then you read the book and you think, actually, it's the Eleanors that need to come, you know, if they want to. We need, we need to all be much... I think we are now. I think we're getting a lot better at accepting that people are, are different. And I hope we're... Well, sometimes I think we are becoming a more tolerant society. Other times it appears not. But yeah. a book like that yeah. does, make you, does make you reflect. This is often my favourite part of the, the podcast where we go from <laughs> enthusing about uh, one of your favourite books. Oh, you, blimey. You would recommend to the book that you couldn't be paid to read again. No, I'm not allowed to swear on the podcast, am I? <laughs> I can just, I can bleep it out later if you if you want. <laughs> I'll be controlled. One of the things, interestingly, the book that you've given me as a choice is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. And maybe like a lot of people have approached it your starting position was, I'll choose uh, an author that is dead, because then, obviously, that you're not offending anyone. Yes. 
I'm getting better at reading bad reviews of my books. Although I did see one the other day because uh, I'd narrated my audio books and uh, described the narration as subpar. So that stuck around my head for a few days. But hey, can't win them all. But uh, I, I would not go out of my way to criticise a book written by someone who, who might potentially then get to hear that. Because why do that? Horses for courses. There are, there are books that we all like and there are books that we don't like. Um, so I thought it was safe enough choosing someone that's been dead for a couple of centuries. <laughs> why, why could I not pay uh, you to read this book again? Well, I have to say, first of all, that I feel as though I'm somehow letting the side down because apparently it's a literary classic. No, I think it is. And I think for the time that it was written, it, I think it was a little bit after Jane Austen was writing the Brontes. I think they were maybe 10, 20, 30 years later. It's quite sophisticated and, and very dark. And I suppose if you think about how women lived in those days, that to write such a dark book full of so much bad feeling compared to Jane Austen, who had nastier characters but took a very light touch with them. I suppose it's quite quite something at that time for a woman to write in that way. But my goodness, it's dreary. It's unremittingly grim. I, I'm struggling to find something. It's miserable. The characters are cruel to each other. To be fair to Heathcliff, he was badly treated early on in the book. He's, he's kind of adopted by the father of the son and daughter, uh, Catherine and Hindley or something like that. The father dotes on Heathcliff and treats him as though he's his own son. And then he dies. And Hindley, I think he's called the son, inherits. And he then says that Heathcliff will be a servant and that he'll wait on them. And, and he treats him very badly. And my gosh, does Heathcliff take his revenge? This is what I find dispiriting about it. The whole book is, is full of cruelty and revenge and, and misery and people getting their just desserts. And it's very hard to see if any... Well, I don't think I even finished it. I don't know if anyone ends up happy, but I don't think they do. It's an interesting structure in the way that you know it tells... It, it starts ahead of time and then tells a bit of it in flashback. But I just, I, I took no pleasure at all in reading it. I thought, let's have something lighter happen. Please, let's have a little bit of light relief. And no, there was none. It's just all misery. I've never read it. And after listening to you talking about it, I doubt I ever will. And also, and I know this might, this is going to divide fans of music. I think the uh, the Kate Bush song is absolutely dreadful. So it's always in my head as well. That, that would... it's, it's, not, it's not a favourite of mine. But it represents quite a miserable bit in the book where, you know, <laughs> Kathy's tapping at the, I think it's the ghost of Kathy that's tapping at the window to get in and you just think, no, Kathy, go, don't, don't get in. You don't want to be in. You don't want to be anywhere near this book. Step away from the book. One thing you just mentioned, just right when we started talking on this category, uh, which I'm always interested, you said you, you read uh, your reviews. As a writer, that's, I suppose, it's obviously nice when, when you get some validation and praise. But as you say, sometimes... And, and sometimes there's criticism, which is constructive and interesting. Absolutely. But then you yeah. obviously must get the, just the, the one-star reviews that probably half the time don't even make any sense to you. Oh, they're, they're so funny. I've actually, I, now I quite embrace them. Apart from the fact that they bring the average down, I'm able to treat them with a kind of a bit of fun. Um, there's one that that's, uh, so I, I, I write um, Scottish crime fiction. My crimes take place in and around St Andrews. I'm Scottish, I live in Scotland. And um, one of my one-star reviews says, well, I don't like books written in England anyway. The language is really funny. Okay, <laughs> right, that, that would be St Andrews by England, would it? I sometimes get criticised for too much swearing in my books. And I don't think they're very sweary for crime fiction. I think there's not really that much swearing in them compared to maybe some others, but that's okay, I don't mind. Someone else gave me a one star, and I have to say, I 100% agree. There was a photograph of the book, and it seemed to be mouldy. Now, I don't know if they bought it, I don't know where they bought it, maybe from eBay or something. It looked milky, and I'd have sent it back rather than giving it a one star review. You know, if somebody's giving you a one star review because they've got a mouldy copy of your book, that's got nothing to do with your book or the quality of the writing. That's whoever sold them the book. Yeah, I've got a few really strange one star reviews. I think there's two or three of them where I've got one star and it praises the book 
to the heavens as though they've clicked the wrong thing. <laughs> I hope they've clicked the wrong thing because heaven, you know, they're, they're very, very good reviews. So goodness knows what you'd have to do to get a five star. The other thing I always feel as well, and I'm very conscious of it, particularly on social media, is, you know, you mentioned it already, that idea of horses for courses. A book's either for you or it's not, and that can be for a whole variety of reasons. But whether it's a one-star review or going on social media and being negative, I, I don't really see any the point in that. If, if you don't like the book, that's fine. Someone else might. I always prefer to be either positive with books that I've enjoyed, or if I haven't enjoyed it, I just don't mention it. Yes, I, I absolutely say if I can't give a good review, then I won't give a review. And someone might say, well, that's not fair. Readers deserve, other readers deserve to know. But then I would say, if you look at the number of reviews that a book has, that will tell you something. Because lots of people I think are like me, they will not leave a bad review. So if a book has, let's say, a thousand fewer reviews than another one that came out at the same time, you may draw a conclusion from that. What can you do? Not everybody is going to like every book. I've bought some books and been disappointed with them. That's life. You pay your money, you take your chance. Yeah. And I hope yeah. people do enjoy the books. And if they don't, that's absolutely fair enough. Move on and, and find someone who's, whose books do chime with you. Well, we're on to the fifth and final choice on the podcast. And that is either the last book you read, the book you're currently reading. You'd mentioned, I think, earlier on in, in the course of the podcast, the author, Francine Toon, who won the, the McIlvany Prize for Crime Fiction last year with the novel Pine. Yes. Pine, I'm reading just now about 50% of the way through. My gosh, you can see why Francine won the award. And you can also see why she's a poet. Or, or you can see that she's a poet rather, not why. Because she wrote poetry first. And this is, this again, sickeningly, is her debut novel. Where did all these brilliant people come from? It's beautifully written. And I think I haven't even got to the, the kind of exciting part. I gather that about two thirds of the way through, the action wraps up. But if it didn't, I wouldn't care because it's, it's like walking onto a film set and just watching it happen. It's just so beautifully described. It's a kind of gothic story, but set in modern day times of uh, a little girl who's 10 and a half. She's called Lauren. And she lives in a village in Scotland somewhere in, I think, the Morryfirth. She lives with her father, Niall, and their mother has been gone for most of Lauren's life. We don't actually know. I still don't know what's happened to Lauren's mother. I don't know if she's dead or if she walked out and left them at the moment. But it's almost like a ghost story in a way because Lauren starts to see this woman in a white robe, a woman with blonde hair in a white robe. And at the time, other people seem to see the woman and then afterwards only Lauren can remember and the other people don't know what she's talking about it's almost as though the woman has bewitched them or is it in Lauren's head we don't know and Lauren herself is a a complex wee character she's trying to because she's just kind of pre-adolescent and she's trying to be one of the as we said said already before but like Eleanor trying to be one of the crowd at school but she's bullied by them and she has a friend who's a, a boy, a little boy called Billy, and she gets on very well with Billy and he'll stick up for her. And sometimes there's an older girl who stick up for her as well. But she really is treated very badly by the other girls at school. And where they live, there's kind of woods or, or forest. And, and there's a lot of kind of, um, you know, you don't really know what's... There's a feeling of threat hanging over the whole book. There's a dripping in the house because they've got a leak. There's a smell that she says is like a bad smell. It reads to me as though there's a body somewhere, but you don't really know if it's a real smell. No one else seems to be aware of it. So there's a brooding, foreboding presence in the book. And the characters are beautifully described as well. But Lauren's father is, is um, a heavy drinker and he struggles to look after her and keep the house warm and feed her. And your heart aches for her. But also, you think there's hope there. It's not as kind of grim as Wuthering Heights. You hope that Lauren is going to find some peace regarding what happened to her mother and that the bullies will stop and, and that things will improve. There's hope, and I hope it's going to come good, but I'm not sure yet. It's just an abs It's a charming book, but more than that, it has real depth to it. It's part of maybe the, the enjoyment of an appreciation the fact that you you know the author as well, does that, you know, that somebody you've, you've got to meet and, and then you actually read their work and think, wow, 
Francine, as well as being nominated for the McIlvany Prize, was also, because this was her first novel, was nominated for the debut prize as well. And the four of us collaborated on a short story in conjunction with the writer of Bloody Scotland founder Gordon Brown. The story was published on the website of Glencairn Glass, who sponsored the, the prize. And it was it was actually great fun. We had a Zoom meeting like this and we came up with what the, the idea for the story was going to be. And then we sorted out who was going to write first, second, third and fourth. And because Francine is an editor, she was also able to lend her skills in editing to knitting together this story. It was really an interesting thing to do because it was like a chain. So I started off and then I passed it to Deborah Masson, who won the prize, the the debut prize. Then Deborah passed it to Francine and Francine passed it to to Stephen the fourth and then Gordon rounded it off for us at the end. And then we had Zooms and talked about editing and things like that. So yes, I had quite a a few chats with Francine about it and and she's just lovely. She's an absolutely lovely, lovely lady. And um, I discovered that her father just lives about two miles along the road from me, which I didn't didn't realise. Although she's down in in London, she's Scottish and lived up here for a while. So yeah, it's nice to know that, that I'm reading something by, something so wonderful by someone that I've got to know. Obviously, she is part of this kind of burgeoning Scottish literary crime scene, as are you. Because I was going to read, maybe just slightly to embarrass you, actually. It was a quote from Claire McCleary, who is a writer, about you and about your debut book. And she writes, all the ingredients of a cracking crime novel, a strong female lead with a dark backstory, a vivid sense of place, a rising body count and a twist you don't see coming, a welcome addition to the tartan noir genre. And... That, I suppose that tartan noir genre is catch-all, but there's a real vibrancy about Scottish crime writing. And as I say, you're part of that, that vibrancy and that, that scene in that community. Claire, first of all, is, is someone else, someone that I've got to know very well through going to writing events. And in fact, she did the MLIT in creative writing at Dundee University. And I went along to one of their events where she read and I spoke to her at the interval and she's incredibly kind she said, send me three chapters and I'll have a look at your writing. And from there, she gave me some advice. And uh, I then went on and found an editor and learned a lot in the process. But she's been the most enormous support to me. And she's a wonderful writer as well. I just love her, her Maggie and Wilma books. They're an absolute hoot. But she's typical of the crime writing uh, fraternity in Scotland, particularly, but also, you know, wider than that. And I would say Bloody Scotland has a lot to do with that because they really go out of their way to foster new talent. You know, they have their pitch perfect where you can pitch to a panel and they will give you advice. And some of the pitch perfect people have gone on to have contracts. And then they have, I forget what it's called, but it's where they buddy up a sort of burgeoning writer or a new writer, maybe a debut with an experience. You know, one of the big names like Chris Brookmeyer or Alex Gray or Lynn Anderson and these people will have a you know they'll fill the Albert Halls or whatever it is um, for their spot and the new writer will get five minutes at the start to read a bit of their novel and it's things like that that along with the debut prize that bloody Scotland just do brilliantly and it helps to foster what is already a lovely helpful there's no nobody in crime writing fraternity in Scotland and wider would be jealous or would say I'm not helping you in case you steal some of my readers or or you know your competition which is what I thought it would be when I started I thought other writers would be competition not at all if they can give you a leg up they will it's the most lovely group to be a part of honestly I feel like I've landed on my feet I think that comes in in some respects obviously from everybody from the top when you think of people like Chris Brookmeyer Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, Denise Minor, and then all the way with any writer who's writing in, in that community, they do always seem to be really generous and supportive. They, they so are. Every All the names you mentioned and plenty more. I've been to lots of talks and, you know, they'll turn out to a bookshop where there's maybe not a huge amount of room so that there's, there's maybe, you know, 30 or 40 people crammed in, but they, they come and they talk and they'll, they'll linger afterwards. They're so generous with their time and and their talents, and, and quite often they'll say, you know, if anybody wants to talk to me about writing, you can ask for more from a, a community. And I suppose, you know, you're now 
you know, we mentioned right at the very start, you've already, you know, you're working in book number six. You're very much part of that that community now, which again, for somebody who's always wanted to write and, you know, it's happened, probably taken a while, but it's happened very quickly in some respects. That, that must be great for yeah. you as well. It is. It's it's an absolute thrill. I, and I can't quite believe that I'm, I'm about to sit and plan book six. That just doesn't seem possible. I actually don't know how it happened. You know, I, I'm not, I feel as if I've, I'm dreaming and I'm going to waken up. I can't possibly have, have got this far in such a short time. But I've had a huge amount of help. It's, you know, I write the books, but my agent is Hannah is, is just wonderful. And, and my editor, Louise at Canelo, my gosh, you know, she can take a book and she'll say, right, this is what you need to do. You need to fix this, 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 this and this. And she makes everything so much better. I mean, I have to do it. But um, she's got such a good eye. And then there's the people who do the marketing and, uh, and then all the, the volunteers on Twitter and Facebook, the people who run these groups for no pay or no reward at all other than fostering crime writing. There's such a lot of help out there. And I'm just, I just can't believe. And I'm, I'm trying very much to try and give a little bit back now to um, other people who are maybe a couple of years behind me to help them if I possibly can, because I have been helped so much. I would never have got here on my own. Which is kind of going to what we were saying, that whole idea of people helping helping you up. Nobody pulls the ladder up after them, which is just a, a brilliant thing. Absolutely not. They're stretching down and saying, let me help you. It's, it's amazing. I would never have thought that before I was part of this, but it's lovely. That's obviously one of the, the many pleasant side effects of getting published. Yes, yes, definitely. There's not very many downsides. I can't even think of any, apart from the work. It's hard work. I love this stage, actually, when I'm talking about book six, where I've got the ideas and I'm, you know, I'm out, as I say, walking my daughter's dog every day. And I'm walking along thinking, as I was this morning, thinking, right, OK, so if somebody did do this, would the police actually know that? And, and kind of, and actually, there was one day I walked into a tree, tree <laughs> branch, literally, I mean, not a whole tree, but there was this branch that had just sort of was hanging a bit more. It must have grown a bit. And the dog was sniffing. And I was walking along thinking, it was book four. I'm thinking, why is she in the pub? I need her to be in the pub. Why is she in the pub? And then I thought, I know why she's in the pub, doing into, into the tree. I thought, oh, has anybody seen me? I was mortified. Listen, that's that's so, suffering for your art, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. It certainly <laughs> is. It's a lovely state. The planning stage is great. I love it. I think sometimes I like the right- that's that whole side of, as you say, just walking and thinking about it. That I think that's such an important part of, of the process. Yeah. I spend almost as long planning as I do writing. because I am a planner. I like to have it planned before I uh, start typing. In fact, in the book that I've just submitted, book five, that's going to be coming out in October, I did a really stupid thing. I will never do this again. You can strike me dead if I do this. I changed the killer halfway through. And I've never done that. And it gave me no end of problems. And it continues to give me problems because there's something coming back from the copy editor that, that needs fixed because I changed this killer. And never, never, never again. Don't ever do that. It's because I knew where I was going. And then halfway through, I was thinking, I'm not really feeling this. This, this killer isn't working. There's, I needed to change it. I did. But I made the mistake of starting writing too soon because... I probably should have spent another couple of weeks just honing that plot and making sure I knew what I was doing and that I was happy with it. I probably knew in the back of my mind all the time that it wasn't the killer wasn't right and it had to be changed. But my goodness, it's it's like it's like a house of cards. It all comes crashing down when you do that. Yeah. So I'll never do that again. <laughs> well, you've now said you've now said it on record, so you can't. Yes. Well, sadly, Marion, we have. Just come to the end of the Read All About It podcast. Oh, that's gone so fast. I'm sorry, I've talked too much um, as usual. No, listen, it's been, I've absolutely loved it. It's, as I say, every time I have anybody on the podcast, it's just, for me, it's just a real joy sitting and talking to people about books. Uh, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. Oh, I've had, it's been fabulous. You've asked really good questions, actually. It's, it, you've made me think. And I loved having to think about the books. I really did. I was very close. Eleanor Oliphant edged it over one other book and I was very close to picking that other book. Well you may but you may as well tell us what the other book was now. <laughs> it's Kate Atkinson's Edinburgh novel One Good Turn. It's a crime novel set in Edinburgh and it's a masterclass in writing. Technically 
it's how to plot. It's just oh, outstanding. And I did not see the ending coming. I really didn't. But what would I pick up between the two if I had to take one of them to a desert island? It would be Eleanor every time because I love her. But you've just given all the listeners just a wee extra book recommendation there as a bonus. But listen, Marion, thanks very much. And best of luck when when you sit down to write book six. Thank you so much. I've had a lovely time, Paul. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. <laughs>